If you would stand, please, and uh, let me read from Luke 18, and we'll start reading in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that because of Calvary, we are in relationship and union with you. Thank you, Lord, that that was received merely by faith. Your grace was demonstrated on the cross and we are overwhelmed by your goodness and your love to us. Thank you, Lord, for this season. Thank you for Thanksgiving. Thank you for your word that you, we hold in our hands. And I would ask that your Holy Spirit would flow through me now, that you would anoint these lips of clay. What I should say, may that be said. What should be deleted, may that be deleted. And may your people grow deep in your word, enriched by the word of God filled up with your presence, streams of living water flowing from our inmost being. And may we go out into this troubled world and spread the gospel, tell people about how good you are, what you've done on the cross, and that there is hope because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
It's not on your outline there, but you could write Matthew 19 there at the top next to Luke 18. And we call that a parallel passage. In other words, we have this account <coughs> excuse me, of this rich young ruler, as he's called. Uh, but we have another account of the same story in uh, Matthew 19. And uh, what we do is uh, if you have a study Bible, you will see in certain sections where that same account is listed in one of the other Gospels. And what it does is we compare those accounts, uh, not to find inaccuracies, but to fill in what I like to call a scriptural mosaic so we can see, oh, this is how Luke records that account. This is how Matthew records that account. Okay, some people that are skeptics, okay, they like to read those accounts and say, oh, see, he says this here and this there. Uh, there must be an inaccuracy. Uh, I like to describe that in this way. If you went to a football game, okay, and there was a large audience there, uh, different people in the stands would see different things. They would say, oh, look at that wide receiver. Oh, look at that lineman. Oh, look at that quarterback. Look at that defensive play. And they might describe it differently. And they're all watching the same game. Okay? Matthew emphasizes certain points as he records the life of Christ. Mark emphasizes certain points. Luke, certain points. John, other points. Okay? And we fit them all together under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Each of those writers wrote. Okay, and we put them all together and it gives this beautiful picture, mosaic landscape, if you will, of the life of Christ. Okay, and helps to flesh out our understanding of, of scripture and to grow in our appreciation of what uh, Jesus has done. Okay, so I read Luke 19 or Matthew 19 uh, this afternoon and you'll get a full picture of this. Look in verse 18 and see what it says. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we're going to find in this conversation that this uh, uh, rich young ruler, as Matthew calls him, okay, has some false views of three things. He has some false views of God. He has a false view of sin. And he has some false views of salvation. And so Jesus comes and speaks to him to help him to see, uh, look, this is the way it really is, okay? Did you ever have any false views of God? You don't need to raise your hand, okay? But the Christian life is all about repentance, turning from the way we have lived by the Spirit of God, coming to Jesus and being born again, and then he spends the rest of our lives changing the way we think. We love our thoughts. We're convinced we're right. We're certain we have uh, life all figured out. And, and, you know, just ask me, I'll tell you. Okay? This is the way we, we usually live and think. And the Bible says in the New Testament that we have the mind of Christ. And that the Holy Spirit comes into us and gives us a new way to think. Okay? And I believe it's an ongoing reality that has to happen again and again and again. Just read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I present my body as a living sacrifice. I surrender control to Jesus. Okay? Jesus does a better job of directing my life than I do. Okay? He just does. Okay? And when the Spirit of God takes up residence in us, we begin to see life differently. 
And Paul builds on that in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I was describing to someone uh, a week or two ago about taking our thoughts captive. And I don't know why I always tell this story, but Lisa and I were just married a few months and we were back east. I was pastoring a little church in upstate New York. And she said, I'm going to the mall. Beware of the woman that says, I'm going to the mall. I mean, that can lead down all kinds of roads. Well, I just made the false assumption that she would be back in 30 or 45 minutes. Silly me. Well, three year, hours later, she wasn't back. And I literally had these thoughts in my mind, I'm not kidding you, of our car turned upside down in a ditch and that she had been in a terrible car accident. I don't know where that came from, but that thought was in my head. And of course, she drives in the driveway a few months later and I'm having heart palpitations and shaking. And she walks up to the back porch and says, what is wrong with you? Well, that's a pretty loaded question you could talk about for a long time, okay? But I said, honey, I thought you were coming back in 30 minutes. And she's like, you've obviously never shopped with a woman at the mall before, okay? Uh, and, and what happened is that thought was in my head, something has happened to my wife. And if we're honest, we've all been there. Our minds run wild with all kinds of things. And we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, study this word, ask the Holy Spirit, uh, and take responsibility ourselves. Because if we let those thoughts run amok, it will really tyrannize our lives. And I don't think it's what uh, the Lord has for us uh, with uh, freedom in Christ. So what we have here is this fellow coming to Jesus, and he begins the conversation in verse 18, good teacher, okay? Now, if you look at the first blank on your outline, the term good was reserved for God in rabbinical thought, okay? So he says, good teacher. Now, we don't know if he's just trying to uh, flatter Jesus. Uh, uh, we don't know if he realized that Jesus was the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe he did. Uh, probably not. We're not sure. Okay. But he says, good teacher. Now you could look up and I would encourage you to do this this afternoon in Psalms 25, uh, 34, 86, and 106, because each one of those uh, Psalms uses the word good God or the goodness of God or something of that nature. Okay, so the word good referring to God was not just flat thrown around in rabbinical schools or in Hebrew uh, places where they taught that, okay? But he starts it off, good teacher. Look at what he says next. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you. You've probably noticed this, okay? But it seems to me when we have the word do, and we have the word inherit, we've got two things that are in contradiction, okay? Something that you do is an activity you engage in, you get paid for it, you enjoy it, you accomplish a task, whatever the case may be, but you are doing something, okay? Activity, action, okay? Now an inheritance is a totally different ballgame. You've done nothing to earn that, a deceased parent wills their goods 
and their, 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 their assets to you, okay? And it's nothing that you pay for. It's an inheritance. If you read the New Testament, you will find the word inheritance many places regarding our salvation, okay? We've received, because of Christ's work on the cross, this inheritance of eternal life and salvation and grace, okay? So he's saying, good teacher, we don't know what's all behind that, okay? But now he's saying, do to inherit eternal life. And there's two different things that are in contrast there. Look at your second blank there. Doing and inheritance reveal a lack of understanding in the young man's thinking. Okay? He's not seeing this fully. And maybe he's just confused between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, okay? We had a long, uh, Tim McNames called me about 30 minutes before Sunday school this morning and said, I'm sick. I can't come and teach Sunday school. I've contacted Dan Daniels. I've contacted Buzz Lawson, and they haven't gotten me back. And I said, uh, okay, I'll do Sunday school. So we dove into Hebrews 12, and I read some stuff in the commentary, and we had a great discussion. And it went down this long road of what about the Old Testament? What about the New where do they fit together? Where are they different? On and on ago. And uh, Tim McNamee is going to come back to a real mess next week uh, in Sunday school. But we had a great discussion. And I don't know that we got the final answer on that, okay? Maybe this man is confused by that, okay? We have some, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 28 for a moment. Keep your finger in Luke uh, 18. See what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In verse 1, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands. Now you could underline if you care to, if you fully obey. It seems clear that the impetus of this command is on you acting a certain way. Okay? Now jump over to verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands, and then it goes on to this long list of curses. Okay? Follow God, you're blessed. Disobey God, you're cursed. Okay? This is what the rabbis taught. Okay? And it is scriptural. A anybody here been able to follow all the commandments in the Old Testament yet? I haven't. Now, they're good commands. Okay? They show us how to live, and we should follow them, and we should be aware of them. Okay? And we're seeing in our culture a complete absence of the commands of God. Okay? And we're seeing the results of that. Okay? I believe it was uh, Ted Koppel that spoke at the uh, uh, Duke University graduation. It was probably 20 years ago now. But he said to this Duke University graduates, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. And I don't know if he was booed off the platform or not, okay? But he made the interesting point, these commands are not, you know, do this if you feel like it. No, these are commandments. But what I think the Ten Commandments do is show us our sin, that we can't follow God's commands, okay? 
But Jesus had to come to change our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, die in our place, carry our sin there, and give us new life in Christ. Okay? So when I come to Christ, does that mean I can just do anything I want? No, of course not. Romans chapter 6. Okay? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. And you read Romans 7 and Romans 8, and you see a beautiful picture of the gospel, and also a very transparent, authentic picture from Paul of what it's like to follow Jesus and the struggle that it is at times, yet rejoicing of what we have in Christ, okay? So that's what we see in Deuteronomy 28. If you follow, you're blessed. If you don't follow, you're cursed, okay? So what's going on here? Well, there's a blank there in the next line. There is grace in the Old Testament and commands in the New Testament. What am I saying here? Sometimes we simplistically say the Old Testament is all about law and commands and what you've got to do. And the New Testament is all about grace and everything's free and wonderful and terrific. And we just float along enjoying the love of God. Okay, that's a rather superficial picture of the scriptures, okay? In Abraham, uh, you can see in your outline there, in, in Genesis 15, 6, okay, it says that Abram believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Friends, that's New Testament Christianity. It doesn't say anything that he did. In fact, is the Ten Commandments weren't even written yet. He just put his faith in Christ. He believed God, okay? And God imputed to him righteousness. And Paul spends all kinds of time in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, uh, uh, fleshing that out and laying that out, okay? And, and you can see those scriptures there in Genesis 15 and Romans 1, 17, okay? The just shall live by faith. Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Reformation, got to Romans 1, 17, and it's like the whole world exploded in front of his mind and in his heart. Why? Because he was a priest and he was doing everything imaginable to try to earn God's favor. Crawling in the snow, okay, studying the scriptures, all night prayer vigils, on and on it went. And he was absolutely racked by guilt. I can never please God. I can never do enough good things. All I find is sin inside of me, okay? If we're honest, I think we've all been there. He read Romans 1.17 and thought, wow, all these things that I'm doing do nothing to give me the peace of God in my mind. Romans 1.17. And the Protestant Reformation took off like a fire after that. Okay? Now, can there be problems with that? Of course. Can people take grace and make it as a license to sin? Of course they can but we can also jam Ten Commandments down people's throat and say, you'd better straighten up and make sure your behavior changes or God's going to be mad at you. I was at a John Piper conference many years ago in Minnesota and he broke this down from the book of John talking about abiding in Christ. Okay, and the question was raised from a pastor in the audience. We have some people that are so determined to follow God's commands and they jam it down people's throats and what do we do about that? But then we have people over here that run with the grace of God and, love, uh, and the love of God and they use it as a license to sin. What do we do with that? 
He wisely said this. For the person that is running with God's Ten Commandments, okay, and trying hard uh, to, to, to uh, uh, follow every one of them, okay, they need a reminder of the grace of God. For the person that's running with, uh, you know, I'm free in Christ, I can do anything I want, I'm just going to enjoy this, okay, whatever, they need a reminder of the Ten Commandments. It was helpful for me. Over the years, I've met people, and sometimes it's myself, just tortured with, you know, oh, geez, this is, well, you know what I need? I need an encounter with the grace of God and the love of God. And in my life, as I've gotten older, I've found, you know what? I'm not looking for an excuse to run out and sin because God loves me so much. In fact, is the presence of the Spirit of God is such a beautiful, wonderful thing. I want more of that. I want more of that. Love of God, change your life when you begin to realize the gravity and the import and the majesty and the beauty of that. I spoke at Steve Nash's funeral this past week and I shared this story and, and uh, Dusty, his widow, told me I could share whatever I like and it wasn't really a funeral for service. It was a large gathering of people and a, and a, a, a dinner and whatnot. But when I found out that Steve uh, had uh, cancer last summer, okay, I had met him at several of the brandings, and I knew that I wanted to talk with him about the Lord and, and see that if he was saved. And I was so blessed when I heard that uh, uh, Nikki Nash was friends with Emily Workin and told him the situation, and, and Andy went over and shared the gospel with him, and he prayed to receive Christ. And I was like, that's fantastic, okay? Well, I went and I followed that up and I was just like, Lord, what do I say? Okay, well, you know, how do I, and I, I, I visited with him three times and uh, I think the second or third time there, I started talking about the grace of God because I find that a lot of people don't understand the grace of God and uh, there's oftentimes a lot of works attached that I've got to do this or God's not going to love me or whatever else. And I said, Steve, imagine it's Christmas morning and your kids are all little and you bought Nikki, uh, his daughter, a new pair of jeans and it was exactly what she wanted. And she ripped the paper off and she jumped up and down and she loved them and it was exactly what she wanted. And, and, uh, and then she got out her wallet and said, Dad, I want to pay you for these jeans. I said, Steve, what would you say? would say, well, I would tell her, honey, it's a gift. I'm just giving it to you because I love you. I said, Steve, that's the grace of God. Jesus died in our place. He loves us. He paid the penalty for our sins. And he says, here, this is yours for the asking. And I said, Steve, what do you think about that? And he had tears running down his face. And he said, that's beautiful. I said, Steve, that's exactly it. The grace of God is the most beautiful thing in all of the universe. That the God and the Savior and the creator of all things would say, I will die for Drew's sins on the cross. I will die. I will take the penalty. I will die in their place. And I will freely offer them this grace. 
And I shared that story at the funeral about Steve. And friends, the grace of God is unspeakably beautiful. And when the truth of that captures your heart, I don't believe that we're going to run out and look for ways to sin. I don't believe that we're going to run out and say, I'm going to heaven now. Can I go get away with this? No. Jesus is amazing. His grace is beautiful. It's incomprehensible. It's mind-boggling. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Would you press into that in your daily quiet time? Would you say with Paul, show me the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. And when the Holy Spirit starts to percolate and ignite that inside of you, you're not running out saying, boy, what can I get away with today? No. You're saying, Jesus, I love you, I worship you, and I believe that will consume your life. And if it hasn't, ask for that. Okay? I don't think this young man fully understood what was going on here. Doing an inheritance reveal a lack of understanding in the young man's thinking. Okay? Now, he obviously didn't have the benefit of the book of Romans as we do. Okay? But I find it interesting that Jesus probes into his thinking okay, and says to him, this is what's really going on in so many words. There is grace in the Old Testament and commands in the New Testament, okay? Okay, there's grace in the New Testament. There's assurance of salvation. There, there, there's, there's the free gift that we receive by faith of Jesus did on the cross. But there's all kinds of instructions to avoid anger, to avoid sin, to avoid sexual immorality, to, to have God's peace, uh, to, to not walk in the world. There's all kinds of commands. But it's not given from the directive of do these things and then you'll get saved. Is this Jesus died? We received that gift of grace by faith. Now walk in this way. Okay? This is the best way to live. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Uh, if not, ask Tim McNames next week. I'm sure he'll have the final answer. Okay, so look at verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus says, why do you call me good? Okay, <clears throat> Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now those in the cults have a field day with that verse, and they say, see, Jesus is denying that he's God. Okay, he's saying he's finite. Only God is good, okay? Okay, and that's not true. This is not a dissertation on the Trinity. One God revealing himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what's happening here. So you can't take that verse and run with your agenda in some cult and say, oh, Jesus is finite just like us. Absolutely not. That's not what's being addressed here. He's just probing the man's thinking. Look at what we see in verse 20. You know the commandments. You're not committed adultery, murder, steal, false testimony, honor your father and mother. Okay? Look at that first blank in the middle section. To inherit the kingdom of God, you must have a change of heart. Okay? The next blank. The rich young ruler didn't see his heart accurately. Anybody ever uh, uh, not see your heart as it really is? You don't need to raise your hand, okay? Uh, 
marriage will show you your heart. Raising a teenager will show you your heart. Okay? And that's oftentimes, you know, sometimes the whole thing of marriage is what it does is it brings things to a boiling part and you see, wow, I'm not responding in a very Christ-like fashion. Okay? Ask a single person that lives alone how wonderful they are and they'll probably say, I'm, I'm just a great guy. Okay? Get married and you realize, wow, I need the Holy Spirit to change my heart to respond like a servant, to put the needs of someone else ahead of my own, okay? I find it interesting here, and put in the third blank there, the 10th commandment wasn't mentioned in the statement of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We've got, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And then he responds in verse 21, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I was in synagogue every week. I took really good notes on my Sunday school paper. I read the Bible from front to back, okay? So he was convinced of his own righteousness. Look back in verse 11 of Luke 18. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Twice a week I fast and I give a tenth of all I, I get. Friends, our attempts to tell God about our righteousness are foolishness. We don't see ourselves accurately when we're doing that, okay? So we just need to stop, okay, and say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I blow it every day, but Jesus died for me. And I'm attempting to walk with him in humility, in dependence on the cross and his grace, okay? So that's what happens here when this, in, in this situation. Look at the next blank there. The command of Jesus exposed the young ruler's heart. What do we mean by this? Look and see what it says. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. I've done it all. I followed all the commands since I was a little kid. Then Jesus says, there's one more thing. Now, Jesus could have jumped to the last commandment and said, don't you see what it says here? Don't covet, okay? If a person has this aspiration for wealth and power and prestige and privilege and wants all kinds of stuff, they're going to have a problem with coveting. Jesus doesn't mention the command, but he just gives him instruction that's going to burrow into his heart where he's going to realize if he follows it, wow, I want my stuff more than I want Jesus. Are you with me? Very interesting. Jesus pokes through the smoke screens, all the religious talk, and says, look, if you do this command, it's going to put the finger on the pulse of what you are really about in your heart. Okay, look what it says. The command of Jesus exposed the young ruler's heart. Okay, in Matthew 19, 22, as I said, the parallel passage, you could read that. Okay, where he talks about sell everything and give it to uh, the poor. We, don't oft we often don't see ourselves accurately. Okay, and we see this in Psalms 19, verse 12, where David says, show me my hidden faults. Okay? As I said, marriage will often expose your hidden faults. 
Okay? It will put you in this boilerplate of daily relationship with your spouse where you begin to realize, you know what? My number one priority in life is me, myself, and I. And if my spouse doesn't fit into that, we got a problem. I'm ashamed to say, but I think I came home and I think our third child was born. And I used to get irritated with my wife that dinner wasn't ready and that the house was uh, not clean. Please say, Drew, we forgive you. I need to hear it. So I finally realized after a short time that coming home and being irritated with my wife, that dinner wasn't ready and the house was a mess, was not very helpful. Sorry, but I'm a little slow, but I finally caught on. And then I realized, you know what, if you come home and start helping with the kids and washing dishes and helping to make dinner or just make it yourself, things go better. I was learning how to be a servant in the crucible of marriage. And if you don't think marriage is a crucible, okay, you're not married. It just is. It's God's laboratory to teach us to be like Jesus. Teach us to put the needs of someone else ahead of their own. I've told you when I sit with young couples in front of my office, they gaze at each other with this glowing look and he's just my knight in shining armor. Oh, she's just the princess from Persia and she's the greatest thing in the world and on and on it goes. And I just look at them and I try not to rain on their parade, but I want to say, can you come back in six months after you've had a few good fights and then we'll have something to talk about because you will have had to learn how to forgive, to serve, to put the interests of someone else ahead of your own. And you know what? Jesus will use that to change you and to grow you. The kids are coming in, but I'm not going to let you go yet. Just hang on. Okay. So this man doesn't see this. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 talks about the word of God going into the soul and the spirit. Okay. You read the word of God, it pierces inside of you, and hopefully you see yourself as maybe you did not uh, before. The last blank there, the spirit of God through his word shows us our true inner condition. Okay? And you can read Acts 2.37 this afternoon to see that uh, Peter preached the word of God. And what happened? It says that it cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? Okay, Folks, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you or you read the word of God and something jumps off the page, okay, do not say, but I did this. But what about this? Say, Lord, here I am. Show me what you want me to see about my own heart. Okay, look at the last section here and we'll wrap it up. Look in verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Now, why would they raise this question? Okay, because Jesus just made the point about a, a camel, okay, going through the eye of a needle. And he talked about how hard it was basically uh, to be saved. And you know what? Uh, this really applies to everyone. Whether they were talking about this rich young man who loved his stuff and had a coveting problem or, 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 or anger or fear or anything else, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. The sovereignty of God has to work in someone's heart to bring them to a place of repentance. 
and they receive what Jesus has done on the cross by faith, okay? Look at that last blank there, Sal or the, the last section. Salvation is free, but not cheap. What am I talking about? Jesus paid a horrible price for our salvation. You receive that freely by grace, okay? And then really where the rub comes in is when you start walking it out and taking up your cross each day and following him, okay? We talked in Sunday school about the fact that a lot of people pray the sinner's prayer, if you will, in jail, okay, because they're in a mess and they get out and they never follow it. They don't follow up on it. They're saved. Jesus, forgive me my sins. Okay, but when they get out, they go back to how they lived before and there's no discipleship or following up. That is the costly part for us as Christians. The next blank, it costs Jesus his life to secure our salvation. Okay? If we understand the cost of discipleship, it will cost us our lives to follow him. That's a pretty intense. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Okay? Maybe just your own self-determination. This is my life. It's what I want to figure. Uh, you know, it's my show. I want to do what I want to do. It's going to cost you that. It might cost you your anger. It might cost you your fear. It might cost you your pride. All of those things, all of the above. Okay? Like Rick Warren said in 40 Days of Purpose, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Let Jesus change you. This is what this is about being conformed to the image of Christ. And you know what confirmation takes? Heat and pressure and stress. And coming to the end of ourselves and saying, wow, Lord, I do not have what it takes to follow you. Help me, I surrender. Look at the next blank. God sees our sacrifices for him and rewards our coming in heaven. Now, where do I get that? Look back at uh, Luke 18, see what it says. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the kingdom of God, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will... will I will fail to receive many times as much in uh, this age and in the age to come. Rewards are coming, okay? Okay? We're going to be rewarded. Jesus died, okay? He promises eternal life and then rewards for our service uh, to him. And that last blank there, the disciples didn't understand the cost that Jesus would uh, pay on Calvary. See what it says in verse 31? We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Okay, we see mocking, insults, spit, flogging, kill him. And I love verse, I don't know if I love it, but it's curious. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. They realized in Acts 2 what he was talking about. The Holy Spirit showed them Oh, that's what was going on here, okay? And it began to make sense. Remember what I said in the beginning? 
This young man did not see God accurately, didn't see his sin, sin accurately, didn't see salvation accurately, okay? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves, okay? What's going on in my heart? What lies am I telling myself? What thoughts have I not taken captivity, okay? Jesus changed my heart, and that's really what repentance is all about. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this insightful, uh, really insight into this young man's heart and life. And the tragedy is, Lord, that he wanted his stuff more than he wanted you. And in any way sad, Lord, I would ask that you would put your heat on our hearts to show our hearts what they really are. And I would ask, Lord, that we would fully and wholeheartedly follow you. That we would repent of foolishness. We would repent of priorities that are out of order. We would make you Lord of everything in our lives and follow you wholeheartedly. I ask that we would be swept away by the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the grace of God. And may that alone have dominion in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.